Turn with me in your Bibles or Bible app to Acts chapter 14. That's where we're going to be at this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, this is a great time to go on your smartphone, download the app real quick. The Bible app is literally in the homepage or home tab of the app. And you can find Acts chapter 14 and read along with us. Don't take my word for it as I'm preaching. You look, be Bereans, search the word, make sure that what I'm saying lines up with the word of God. This morning we're continuing our studies in the book of Acts, and today we're going to look at a study I've titled Enduring Persecution and Experiencing Deliverance. Our main text is Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 20. But to help keep the context of where we're at, let's actually begin reading in verse 49 of Acts chapter 13. So Acts chapter 13, verse 49, we're going to read through the end of chapter 13. It says, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium, and the disciples were were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We spent the last three weeks seeing what God was doing in the city of Pisidian Antioch, there in modern-day Turkey, in the region of Galatia, also called Asia Minor. And Paul and Barnabas had left the island of Cyprus. They had gone into Perga. They went from Perga. They went up into Antioch of Pisidia. And they got into this synagogue and were given an opportunity, a really sweet opportunity that made... What maybe frightens some of us to to kind of take that step and open our mouths and 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 proclaim Jesus to a large group of people, but that's what Paul did. He he knew that God was opening that door. He took that opportunity. He proclaimed Christ, and we saw that the reactions were mixed. There were people who responded in belief. There were others who hardened their hearts to the Lord, didn't want anything to do with the Jesus that Paul had preached. But those who believed, Paul uh, exhorted them to continue in the grace of the Lord, to continue in this new covenant of grace that had been ushered in through Jesus Christ. We saw that A whole multitude of people gathered together in the city to hear the word of God. The the Jews were filled with envy. They stirred up people against them. And ultimately, uh, through persecution, they expelled Paul and Barnabas from their city. They, They forced them out physically. Paul and Barnabas shook the dust off their feet, but But what wasn't shaken off was the joy of the Lord and the people that they left behind. That the people, the disciples that were made there were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Even with Paul and Barnabas being forced out. I don't know about you, but I would be pretty discouraged. I would would feel a little helpless if, if the people that were just telling me about this Jesus were now pushed out of the city and I, I didn't have access to them anymore. And yet the Holy Spirit was working in a special way. 
And, and I think for, for us, you know, sometimes our perspective of situations and things that go on are not always from a perspective of sort of the Lord's hand. It, it may, a lot of times, maybe we don't necessarily have uh, an eternal sort of perspective on our, our present circumstances. And what ends up happening for some of us is that as we go through things, instead of seeing how the Lord delivered, instead of seeing how the Lord was helping, instead of seeing how the Lord was giving grace and strength and, and, and he was working in those situations, we focus on the negative aspect and we miss what God actually did. Anybody else ever find yourself there? And I love it that Paul, not in this moment, but later on, years later, he he gives us his perspective in light of the persecution. I want to show you a passage of scripture to kind of preface our study this morning. And then at the end of our study, we're going to revisit this passage as we conclude. But Paul, at the end of his life, shortly before his his martyrdom, he wrote this to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He said, But you have carefully followed my my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me, notice, at Iconium, sorry, at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Timothy had followed Paul's doctrine, his teaching, but he had also followed Paul's practice, his life, his purpose, his faith, his long-suffering, his love, his perseverance. Paul's preaching and his living lined up with each other, and it was, it was visible and followable by others. But again, notice that Paul mentions Antioch, which was Pisidian Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystra as, as specific, notable places of persecution but also specific and notable places of experiencing the Lord's deliverance. And I think as we go through this, we may miss how the deliverance took place if we don't see that the deliverance doesn't always look the way that we want it to. That Paul is telling us years later, look, the Lord delivered me out of them all and And for sure, by the end of our time this morning, at least one of these situations, we're not going to look at and go, yeah, God delivered him. We're going to go, how was that deliverance? And yet Paul is able to tell us from an eternal perspective, God delivered me. He was working. He was rescuing me. He was there in my trouble. And I pray for each of us today that we will start to learn to see the Lord's hand in our hardships. That instead of focusing on all the junk that's going on that we don't like, we'll be able to actually see through those eyes, uh, see through those things, 
through the, through the lens of an eternal perspective that would help us to be able to go, God, you were there. God, you were working. You delivered. Yes, you let me go through hard things, but you were with me in the hard things. And be able to praise him in the midst of, of even times where we're not seeing the outcome be the way that we desire it to. And so I, I want us to keep in mind this passage this morning as we just finished seeing Paul and Barnabas being driven out of Pisidian Antioch because of persecution, and, and now the persecution they're going to face in Iconium and Lystra, that, that there's an endurance to be seen here in Paul's preaching and practice, but also that the Lord was bringing about deliverance for these men as they faced persecution. So let's get into our our first major section of Scripture here, verses 1 through 6, as we're going to see their time in Iconium. But let's begin by reading verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It says, now it happened in Iconium that they, were, uh, so they, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. And so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Iconium was about a 90-mile journey east of Pisidian Antioch in Asia Minor, still in the region of Galatia. Paul and Barnabas had been driven out of Pisidian Antioch because of persecution, and their next stop was to go to the city of Iconium. And just like in Pisidian Antioch, their pattern was to go to the Jews first. So when they got to Iconium, they find a synagogue of the Jews and they preach the gospel to all who gathered there, which again, in these sorts of settings, especially in these predominantly Roman-occupied areas, there were a lot of Gentiles who were proselytes to Judaism who were also present among the Jews. This is why we'll see a response of of Gentiles turning to the faith as well in this Jewish synagogue. The the result of their preaching at this synagogue was that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed in Jesus. They preached the good news of Jesus Christ, his his death, his burial, his resurrection, the, the salvation that's found in him alone. And a multitude of people responded in faith to what they heard. And this would have been an exciting moment, no doubt. I mean, if you go somewhere and you, you have an opportunity to share about the Lord and, and there's this great response of faith, I mean, you would, you would have sort of a, a spiritual high. You'd be so excited, like, gosh, this is like the greatest thing that could ever happen. And it is when you consider that people who were dead in sin are now finding life and hope in Jesus Christ. But it wasn't all rainbows and unicorns. It wasn't all flowers and sausages. Because we find in verse 2 that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and 
poisoned their minds against Paul and Barnabas. But in spite of the Jews who poisoned the minds of some of the Gentiles in this city, and and in spite of how some of these Gentiles now thought of Paul and Barnabas because of the manipulation and lies of the gospel-rejecting Jews, we see in verse 3 that they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. This is one of those things of endurance. You know, because when somebody's mind is poisoned towards you, one of your first sort of just human kind of fleshly reactions is to want to just move on from them. You're not into me. You don't like me. You're against me. I mean, let's put it in the context of here. Their, their minds have been poisoned. That word poison speaks of being embittered. Speaking something to somebody else that would cause someone to resent or become bitter towards someone. And when someone's bitter towards you, are you like trying to like keep being a friend to them? Are you, are you trying to keep loving them and blessing them? It's kind of the, the last thing, again, in our flesh that we would want to do. And yet, don't we see that happening so much in our day? People's minds being poisoned towards other people. Manipulation and lies and gossip and all kinds of things on both sides of the spectrum. People's minds are being poisoned towards other people. They might love somebody one day and the next they're like, they, they're gone. They're out of their lives. They're, they're, they're being blacklisted. And yet we see this, and we see this even within Christendom, unfortunately. It's, it's tragic. It's, in my opinion, repulsive in the sight of God. That we would say something about someone else that would poison someone's mind towards somebody and want to not love them anymore. To feel like they're excused from sort of the the normal Christian life of what Jesus has called us to. These Jews poisoned the minds of the Gentiles and yet they stuck around. They kept at it. It doesn't say that they moved on from those people whose minds were poisoned. It doesn't say, and then, you know what, they just kind of shoved them to the side. We'll focus on these other people. No, they, they continued in the trenches, so to speak. Paul and Barnabas didn't give up. No, they stayed there. They continued speaking boldly in the Lord. They kept being faithful. They kept loving people. They endured in spite of the poisoning influence of the Jews, and they kept putting all the emphasis on Jesus. You know, when someone's mind's been poisoned towards you, it's easy to put the emphasis on you and how you're being affected, how you're being treated, how you're feeling. 
But Paul and Barnabas aren't throwing a pity party here. They just kept talking about Jesus. They kept making it all about him. And as they did, we're told the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace. This is just another reference to the gospel message. Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Signs and wonders both being words that just are a reference to miracles taking place. But notice the order there. The signs and wonders weren't first. No, that the proclamation of God's grace through Jesus Christ was first. And, and then as a way of authenticating that Paul and Barnabas were speaking things from the Lord, were sent by the Lord, God granted the miraculous, miraculous? I know how to speak. The miraculous to take place. And notice too that the signs and wonders weren't happening by the will of Paul and Barnabas, where at any time and in any place and in any situation, they could do signs and wonders, but the Lord, that the Lord granted these things by his will, in his timing, and by his power. The focus was on the word of grace, the gospel of grace, that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But in his grace, he granted signs and wonders to be done by the apostles' hands there, in that city. So there's some really special stuff happening, even in spite of this poisoning sort of influence of the Jews. But let's read on in this account. Verses 4 through 6 continues on. It says in verse 4, but the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And that's where I stop. I thought I was going to keep going. Notice that neither the preaching nor the signs and wonders won over the city. Isn't that what we would think the natural progression of that account would be? And everybody just loved them now. Everybody got along. It was great. There was not one unbeliever in this city. Everybody got saved. For me, that's what I would sort of expect to see in this next verse. But instead, we see that the gospel was dividing the city. And isn't it interesting that the gospel oftentimes has a dividing sort of effect? It's not that we divide. As we share, well, you don't want, you don't want Jesus, like, okay, forget, forget you, like, get away from me, like, we don't do that, but the gospel oftentimes divides, because when you reject it, there's a hardening that takes place. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, right? In John chapter 3, he talked about how People wouldn't believe because if they came to him, their deeds would be exposed because men love the darkness rather than the light. And oftentimes as believers, just our, our presence 
because the light of Christ is in us. It can have that exposing sort of influence in the lives of other people that makes people then want to divide from you. And it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't cause us to respond by further dividing. But, but it's going to happen. And it happened here in the city of Iconium. Part sided with the apostles, part sided with the gospel-rejecting Jews. But things didn't just stay in a state of division because in verse 5 we see that the Gentiles and Jews and the rulers of the Jews in that city, all those who rejected Jesus, they, they plotted violence against the apostles to abuse and stone them, which was really more of a Jewish means of execution. This was not a pleasant thing. This, this wasn't like they just picked up some little pebbles and wanted to chuck them at them. This was, this was a, a, a death sentence. This was, we're going to obliterate you with stones. This is not sort of a, a, you know, a, a chill sort of thing here. This was the plan that was being concocted by some of these people. But remember, Paul and Barnabas aren't being troublemakers. They're not being jerks. They're not preaching rebellion or hatred. No, they're preaching the word of grace. That Jesus loved these people, wanted to save and forgive and justify these people in this city. And the Lord is working miracles through them, and yet this plan of execution was set in place. But the Lord is going to deliver We see in verse 6 that somehow they became aware of this plan by the Gentiles and Jews and their rulers, and they fled to Lystra and Derbe. These were cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. This deliverance by the Lord was not without troubles. Fleeing for your life is not, not just like a easy thing. But the Lord brought about this realization of the plot and he provided an opportunity to flee to another area. The Lord was providing deliverance. So this was their sort of their short time, not really short time because they stayed there a long time, but this is what happened in this period of time there in Iconium. But let's move on and get into our second major section of Scripture where we see their time in Lystra. This is going to be through verses 6 through 20, but let's read verses 6 through 10. Verse 6 again says, They became aware of it. They fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Lystra was about an 18-mile journey southwest of Iconium in central 
Asia Minor, again, still the region of Galatia. And this is the, the first of several times in the book of Acts that Paul is going to visit the city of Lystra. According to one resource, uh, unlike its sister colony, Pisidian Antioch, Lystra and the surrounding countryside actually retained their traditional Anatolian culture and dialects. And I found out recently by the thanks of 23andMe that I don't get any pay for by plugging them uh, that I'm like 4% Anatolian. So I have a special connection now to all of this that you might not have. And I apologize for that. I don't apologize for being Anatolian. 4% again. But they had their own flavor there. Where a lot of these other areas is just predominantly speaking Greek, they, they would have also spoken Greek, but they preserved their long-standing culture and their own dialect within that region. And this is something I, I share because it's helpful when we consider what's going to happen in just a, a, just a, a short number of verses here. But we also gain from the beginning of their time in Lystra that there must not have been a synagogue in this city which also meant that there was little to no Jewish presence in the city of Lystra. Normally, if there was at least 10 Jewish men in a city, there would be a synagogue for those men to be able to gather at. So there was no doubt less than at least 10 Jewish men in this city, maybe, maybe none at all. But this didn't deter them from preaching the gospel. It just changed where they started preaching the gospel. Without a synagogue, they went to where the people were in the city, possibly the marketplace, and they preached the gospel there. They, they continued doing the thing that continually made them a target and brought them persecution, and that was preaching the gospel. Because their concern for the souls and eternity of lost people was greater in importance than any threat of harm or even death that would come to them in this life. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, if we were to put our finger on what stops us from preaching the gospel many times... I think one of the top reasons that we might list, really, is self-preservation. It's self-preservation. And it it may not be as serious as a, I just don't want to die. I don't want somebody to kill me because I'm preaching the gospel. I mean, that was the situation for Paul and Barnabas. That is the situation for many believers in, in different parts of our world who are in Areas that are closed off and hostile to the, to the gospel like Iran and China and in other places. But for us, that self-preservation might just be that makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to share because I'm, I feel awkward. You ever felt that way? I don't want to talk to somebody about Jesus. I feel awkward. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to start the conversation. What if I say something stupid? 
What if I got a booger hanging out of my nose the whole time and I didn't even know it? I mean, let's be honest. We come up with a bunch of excuses before we even decide to do the thing that we may possibly do or not. Self-preservation is a, a strong motivating factor for many believers in not sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. But what if, and I'm not trying to be insensitive, and I'm not trying to, because I am in the same place as all of you. It's a lot easier to preach the gospel from this pulpit here, this nice, sturdy pulpit that I get to stand behind, than it is when a contractor comes to my house, or when I'm talking to my neighbor across the street, or when I'm in the grocery store or at the gas station. But what if you and I valued more highly the eternity of other people than we did how we looked, than we did how we sounded? And I sound weird. Like, I say weird things. I say miraculous. That happens. I talk about being 4% Anatolian, and I exclude all of you, make you feel bad about yourselves. I'm sorry. I was going to roll with that one all morning. Just, just know that. I would never have known that just a few months ago, guys. This, my life's been changed. <laughs> but seriously, what if we just got over ourselves? And I mean that in the nicest way possible because I speak that to myself. But I think there's a perspective shift that needs to happen for all of us because you, like me, have most likely noticed in this season of time that hopelessness is at an all-time high. Depression and discouragement is at an all-time high. What do you and I have? We're not any better than anybody else. We know that. But we have a hope that they don't have. Because our hope is rooted in the Savior that we've received. In the good news that you and I have grabbed a hold of. We have something to share. We may, we may not share it perfectly. We may stumble over our words. We might have the booger in our nose. But who cares? That I, I encourage us, even this week that we would pray for the Lord to help us to value the eternity of other people over how we feel, over how we look, over how we're perceived, over how the message is received. And then ask for boldness to share the message. Some of us might be afraid to even pray for boldness because we know if we do, He's going to give us an opportunity to be bold. I don't even want to pray for that. I don't have a pulpit to stand behind when I'm at the grocery store. You don't need one. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. Just give people Jesus. That's what I need to do. Our time is short. Our time is short. 
Go to where people are at. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. Don't wait for people to come to you. Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel there. And in verses 8 and 9, we're told there's a man in the city who was crippled. No strength in his feet. He had been a cripple from his mother's womb. He had never walked in his life. And that this man heard Paul preaching the gospel. And whether there was some sort of expression on this man's face, maybe that showed his heart was soft to the gospel, that he had faith to be, to be healed, or, or whether the Holy Spirit gave Paul discernment of where the man was at as he preached, Paul observed him intently. He was staring right at this guy. He's preaching the gospel, but he's, he's looking at people. He's speaking to the hearts of people. And as he did that, he noticed something about this man. Notice he had faith to be healed. And so in verse 10, it says that with a loud voice, he told the man, stand up straight on your feet. This was an invitation. It was an invitation to respond to the faith that the man already had. He just needed somebody else to invite him to, to act on, on the faith that he had. And in a response of faith, this man who had never walked, had always been crippled, he, he leaped. He didn't just stand up. The dude jumped up and walked. This man had been hearing Paul preach about Jesus, had faith to be healed based upon whatever he had heard Paul preach about Jesus. And God used Paul's invitation to draw this man to a place of acting on the faith that he had. And God met him where he was at and he healed him. You know, sometimes we feel like God's not working because we're not seeing the outward miraculous. But I want us to understand something. That outward miraculous is all great. I'm not going to discount that. And I, I believe that even today, God is still working in those sorts of ways. I believe that God can heal in the same way today as he did here in our passage before us. But the outward miraculous, it, it really doesn't mean a whole lot if there's not an inward miracle taking place and that inward miracle being that someone who is spiritually dead, separated from God by their sin, on the road leading to destruction, being snatched off of that road and placed into the kingdom of God and being made alive in Christ Jesus. That miracle is the greatest miracle that it could ever take place for anyone. 
And I think a lot of times what we're seeing in our day and what we, we might be missing out on is that there are people who are spiritual crippled. Cripples. Cripple? Crippling? Crippled. They're crippled spiritually. They're lame and unable to walk spiritually. They can't stand in the Lord because they're, they're crippled by sin. They're in bondage to Satan. And, and what's needed is for someone else to come along and look at them, just, a, just like Paul looked at this man, to show value to them, to listen to them, and to, and to share the gospel with them and give that invitation that would, that would allow them to act in faith and stand up and leap. You and I are those people to give that invitation. Because the Lord has reached down to us and lifted us up. You and I, God wants to use in the same sort of way to to see those who are crippled in sin and to lift them up. That they might receive life in Jesus Christ. God forbid that we would withhold that invitation from anyone. Or think that maybe people just don't want to hear the invitation. You know what? They don't have time for that. They're not going to be into it. I believe there are people around us who are just waiting. They're just waiting. To have the gospel invitation extended to them. Instead, our mindset oftentimes is to think, no one wants it. But that's not true. This man, God met where he was at. He, he healed him. He, res, he, he restored something to him that he had never been able to experience before using his legs. But the interesting thing here is that this situation didn't result in multitudes turning in faith to Jesus because of his power to heal this formerly crippled man. Instead, it brought about a different kind of danger than the persecution that they had experienced up to this point, which we're going to see in the next verses here, verses 11 through 13. It says now in in verse 11, now they raise their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus whose temple was in front of their their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. When the the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices in their native language, which again helps us understand how this got so wild so quickly before Paul and Barnabas realized what was happening because it's likely that they didn't understand the Lyconian language, but these people shouted, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. You remember what happened to Herod? When the people gathered and they started to shout the voice of a god and not of a man, and and Herod didn't deflect that glory back to the Lord? How an angel struck him and he was eaten by worms and died? 
I mean, this is a serious sort of situation, a potentially serious sort of situation for these apostles. They started calling Barnabas the name, Barnabas and Paul, the name of their two Greek gods. And it got even more crazy in verse 13. The, the priest of the temple of Zeus, he brings out these oxen and garlands and he's wanting to sacrifice these animals for these two men. This was a real crazy situation here. And may seem a little odd to us that it got so extreme so quickly, but uh, there's, some, there's some background that can help us sort of understand better and shed some more light on the crowd's behavior here. And I'm going to read a quote from a pastor and Bible commentator named John Stott. He said, after 50, uh, about 50 years previously, the Latin poet Ovid had narrated in his Metamorphosis an ancient local legend. The supreme god Jupiter, Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, or Hermes, once visited the hill country of Phrygia, disguised as mortal men. In their incognito, they sought hospitality, but were rebuffed a thousand times. At last, however, they were offered lodging in a tiny cottage thatched with straw and reeds from the marsh. Here lived an elderly peasant couple named, or called Philemon and Bacchus, who entertained them out of their poverty. Later, the gods rewarded them, but destroyed by flood the homes which would not take them in. It is reasonable to suppose that both, uh, suppose both that the Lystran people knew this story about their neighborhood and that if the gods were to revisit their district, they were anxious not to suffer the same fate as the inhospitable Phrygians. So that just sort of helps explain the fervor of the multitude after seeing the miracle of the crippled man being healed and them jumping to the conclusion in their superstitions that Paul and Barnabas were gods that had come down to them in human form that they were to worship and sacrifice to in order to spare their lives. But the, the reason I said just a bit ago that this brought about a different kind of danger than the persecution that they had experienced up to this point is that, is that the persecution was a physical threat that, that clearly required endurance to get through. But this situation was much different. Up to this point, they had experienced some, some pretty heavy persecution, as we've seen. But now, all of a sudden, the whole city is praising and exalting these two men and wanting to worship them as gods. See, the danger wasn't persecution. No, it was a, a subtle and deceptive danger called pride. It would have been easy for Paul and Barnabas to go, you know what? This feels really nice to have people finally like us for a change. They're not trying to kick us out of their city. They're not trying to stone us to death. They want to sacrifice and have a barbecue with us. That's pretty awesome. I like barbecue. This sounds really good. That garland's going to look real nice on me. They could have also thought, you know what? This is a great opportunity. 
I mean, they think so highly of us, we could just run with this one and we're going to have even greater opportunity to share the gospel. As they elevate us, we'll elevate Christ. But thankfully, didn't do all any of those things. As we'll see in the following verses, once Paul and Barnabas recognized what was happening, they refused that worship. They, they pointed these people to the Lord. But it's so important that we don't fall prey to the deceptiveness of pride, that we don't grab onto the praise and adoration of others, but instead stay humble before the Lord. Give Him all the praise and adoration and glory and at the same time, not elevate fallible people, but elevate God alone. But let's see how this continues to shake out in verses 14 through 18. It says in verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Once Barnabas and Paul figured out what was going on, that the sacrifice was actually for them. They tore their clothes. They were in one way showing that they're just humans. Look under my shirt. Like, I'm just like you. I got a nature just like you. But in tearing their clothes, they were also showing their strong opposition to the blasphemous things that the people were doing. They ran in among the multitude. They cried out with a loud voice. They began to make it clear that they were not worthy of any worship or sacrifice because they were just men, not gods. Asking them why they were doing these things, making it clear that they were preaching, that what they were preaching to them was that they should turn from these useless or empty things, their false gods, and turn instead to the living God. And then Paul and Barnabas went on to describe who the living God is that they're to turn to. I like what pastor and Bible commentator David Gutzik said about their message here that they proclaimed to the people. He said, Paul called the Lystrian crowd to consider the real God, the one who stands behind all creation, not one of the lesser and imaginary Greek gods. The things Paul mentions in Acts 14, 17, he did good, he gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness were just the kinds of things these people would think that Zeus gave them. Paul told them these blessings come from the true God who lives in heaven, not from Zeus. God's kindness to all men in giving rain and fruitful crops should be seen as a witness of his love and power, something theologians sometimes call common grace. Paul did not preach to these pagan worshipers 
the same way he preached to, to Jews or those acquainted with Judaism, he did not quote the Old Testament to them, but instead appealed to natural revelation, to the things that even a pagan could understand by looking at the world around them. You know, Paul and Barnabas had observed their audience, realized the cultural and religious differences that existed in this city. And they were able to speak to these people where they were at. They didn't water down the gospel because in verse 7 we're told they preached the gospel there. But in this moment where the people were hailing the apostles as gods and wanting to make animal sacrifices to them, the apostles found a starting point to start preaching from that these people could connect with and went on to use that to call them to turn instead to the true and living God who wasn't anything like their Greek gods. He wasn't one of many gods. He wasn't to be added to their list of gods. No, he was the one and only God, alive and powerful, creator of all things, who had been gracious and merciful and patient with mankind since the beginning of creation, even though the nations have consistently walked in their own ways and not his ways. But even with all of that, we see in verse 18 that what they preached didn't really convince these people and that they had great difficulty stopping the people from sacrificing to them. But let's continue on and look at our last two verses, verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. We now see a new development in the midst of all this craziness of the multitudes hailing Paul and Barnabas as gods, wanting to sacrifice these animals to them. And that was that the Jews who had rejected Jesus from Pisidian Antioch and those from Iconium seemed to join forces together against Paul and Barnabas, traveling over a hundred miles in their dedication to be a thorn in Paul and Barnabas's sides and came to the city of Lystra where Paul and Barnabas had been preaching. Once they get there, they persuaded the multitudes who had just worshipped the apostles to stone them, or stone Paul, and drag him out of the city, which they did, and they left him there supposing he was dead. So they must have done a pretty good job stoning him that they were pretty confident that they thought that they had killed him. But this is a, a powerful example of how fickle people and their praise can be and how quickly things can change. But in considering this situation here, it also reminds us that years earlier, Paul had stood by in approval as Stephen was drugged out of Jerusalem and, and stoned to death for the sake of the gospel. But now here's Paul years later 
now a, a transformed man because he met Jesus and received Jesus' salvation. Now an apostle of Jesus sent out by the Holy Spirit to, to bring the gospel of Jesus to others. Now being the one stoned by a mob and drugged out of the city, left for dead for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. You know, it's unclear where these disciples were from that had gathered around Paul in verse 20, but I don't think it's a stretch to say that they gathered around him to pray. That in gathering around him, there could have been some mourning and weeping that took place, thinking also that Paul was dead. Paul's persecutors thought they had won, but God had other plans. Because after the disciples gathered around him, Paul got up, went back in to the city, which is amazing just in and of itself, both because he rose up after being stoned. I mean, he had to have been in pretty bad shape at that point in time. He later would go on to say, I carry about in my body the marks of Jesus. There's things recognizable about Paul's physical form that carried around the scars of all the things that he endured, being stoned and left for dead was one of those things, enduring floggings and beatings and all these different things. He, he bore in his body those sorts of things. But he gets up and he gets back into the city and just understand how significant that is. The, the city where the people were that had just drug him out and stoned him was the same city that he got up and went back into. I mean, what kind of testimony would that be? We just, we just stoned this guy to death. And now he's just sauntering back into town. Like, I don't, he may have had an unintended swagger here. He may have been like dragging his feet. Like, you know, like he may have gone into this place like a gangster. Not really, but he was maybe hurting and he goes back into the city but just imagine the kind of testimony that that would have been that years later he could say, Timothy, you followed my example. You saw me. You saw what I went through. Timothy being from these areas. You, you know what I went through for the sake of the gospel, but you know at the same time how the Lord delivered me. Timothy again in 2 Timothy 3 verses 10 through 11, he says, you carefully follow my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in these cities, like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecutions I endured and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, we see the endurance of Paul in these persecutions and afflictions. But more than that, Paul wants us to take note of how the Lord was a deliverer. Clearly, God didn't keep Paul from persecutions and afflictions, but he was with Paul in the persecutions and afflictions, and he brought him through them and many... Many years later, Paul was able to look back at these things 
with an eternal perspective, seeing God's deliverance in ways that you and I might not if we were in his sandals. He didn't wear shoes, they had sandals. God was delivering. We'll see more in our account as we finish out chapter 14 next week, but I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Look at, in closing, as we consider our portion of scripture this morning, I believe God wants to do a work in us. I'm confident of that, actually. Where like Paul, others would be able to follow our doctrine, our manner of life, the way that we live with purpose, our, our faith, our long-suffering, our love, our perse- perseverance, and even persecutions and afflictions, all of those things honoring and representing Jesus and, and reflecting Jesus to those around us. where our words and our actions would line up with each other. I believe God wants to do a work of building endurance into our lives for the trials and difficulties that we face and that we will face. I believe he wants to grow us in his grace and and make us messengers of his word of grace, his gospel, that he wants to send us to others with the greatest invitation ever made available. Salvation by grace that's found in Christ alone. I believe today that God's wanting to encourage and strengthen those that are going through difficulty. Maybe you're in the midst of it right now and you're not seeing in your circumstances how God's delivering or how God can even deliver at all. And you know what? That deliverance might not look the way that you want it to. But he's there. He is with you always, even until the end of the age. He's there to uphold you with his righteous right hand. He's able to be strong for you in your weakness. He's able to give victory in those places of struggle and failure and defeat. He's able to encourage in those places of discouragement. And he's able to give us an eternal perspective on what we're seeing, what we're facing, even now. Not just so that years later we can look back and go, oh, that's how you're, you were with me, Lord. Oh, oh, that's how you were, that's what you wanted to do. But that in the midst of the things that aren't resolved, we would be a people who are able to worship God even when stuff hasn't been worked out. Trusting him, keeping our eyes upon him, 
knowing that he's going to see us through. And that seeing us through might be just seeing us through into eternity. Would we trust him today? Would we endure today in the face of difficulty? And would we carry the gospel of grace with us wherever we go? Would you guys pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this time and your word. God, we thank you for the example of your word. Lord, that you see us where we're at. Lord, maybe even today some are feeling crippled. Maybe they're crippled in anxiety. Lord, maybe they're crippled in fear. Maybe they're crippled by discouragement, by depression, by isolation. Maybe they're crippled because of financial burdens. Maybe they're crippled by relational difficulties. Maybe they're crippled, Lord, because of struggle with sin that they're not finding victory over. God, wherever your people are at today, if there's any sort of crippling element at all in their lives, Lord, would you call them to stand today? Lord, would they find strength in you to stand? God, would you pour out your spirit upon them? Lord, would you, would you give them victory and joy? Would you encourage and uplift? God, would you bring healing and grace? Would you give wisdom and direction? Lord, give us endurance in these days. Lord, help us not miss those ways that you're delivering, those ways that you're working, those ways that you're present, that we wouldn't miss your hand upon our lives, God. God, help us to trust you, Lord, even when nothing has been resolved, to worship you, Lord, even when it hurts. Lord, if there's any today that don't know you, that don't have a personal relationship with you, Lord, they've never put their faith in you. They've never experienced your salvation and forgiveness. Lord, even now, would you be speaking to their hearts, revealing Jesus to them, their need for Jesus, their need for a Savior. And in this attitude of prayer, if that's you this morning and you're in that place, you need forgiveness. You need the hope of Jesus Christ. You need the salvation that he alone offers. I want to give you that invitation today to stand. To stand in a gesture of faith. If that's anybody here today, if that's you and you want to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you to stand right now if that's anyone here this morning. Maybe there's some online even that are joining us this morning and you know that's you and you need to stand in your living room, you need to stand in your kitchen 
If you're driving, don't stand. But I just encourage you, if that's you this morning, that you would just pray this prayer, that you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. Jesus, I put my faith in you. Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you give me your righteousness? Justify me in the eyes of the Father. Would you save me? Be my Lord. Be my God. Be my friend. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the grave. Jesus, this morning I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. And I turn to you in faith. Jesus, I put my trust and my hope in you. I just encourage you as you do that, as you pray that prayer genuinely from your heart, the Bible says you will be saved. Lord, thank you for your salvation. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, thank you for being our deliverer, our savior, our help, our strong tower, our refuge, our rock, and our redeemer. Lord, we want to respond to your word with these songs of praise, Lord. We want to declare boldly and loudly who you are, Lord. Lord, we want to commune with you, Lord, through the elements of bread and juice, remembering your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. Jesus, we worship you. We thank you. Would you send us out today, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you, Jesus, would be on our lips, that, Lord, instead of self-preservation, we would choose gospel proclamation. Lord, use us for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.